Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vine Pairs Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. In the final moments of the 2008 Sex and the City movie, the four protagonists enjoy a nostalgic reunion with an old friend, Cosmo. This is delicious, Charlotte says, as she sips a perfectly pink Cosmopolitan from an oversized martini glass. Why did we ever stop drinking these? Miranda wonders. To which Carrie quips, because everyone else started. Now, I'll be honest, I hate to immediately reference Sex and the City as we introduce today's drink, but that scene does capture the Cosmo's plight pretty well. Because there was a point when everyone did start drinking this cocktail. And that probably had a hand in making it uncool. On the other hand, and at its core, the Cosmopolitan remains, as Charlotte says, a delicious cocktail. Today is also a treat for us at Cocktail College because we're lucky enough to be joined by the cocktail's very own creator. That individual also happens to be the first guest who's returned to discuss a second cocktail on the show. And they truly need no introduction, so I'll hold those details for now. But I will preview some of the other unexpected topics this conversation leads us to, like how a one-time staff drink becomes an international sensation, how interactions between bartenders and the sharing of knowledge and specs has changed over the years, and the role that the internet has played in that. So without any further ado, listener, let's kick off our very own nostalgic reunion with an old friend, and let's go crush some cosmos. All right then, listener, the sun is rising yet again for another day here at Cocktail College, and it's an exciting one today because we polled you, the people that matter, to see who you'd most like to have join us for the first time ever, a reappearance on the show. And unfortunately, Brian Miller wasn't available, but you don't need to worry about that. No. Because Toby Cicchini's here, everyone. Toby, welcome back. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Both of those things were a lie. No one was polled, and I'm not delighted to be here. (laughs) Not listened to your episode before. That's where they should start. They should go back. They should listen to the Gimlet. I know people are coming up to you all the time at the bar. Constantly. And telling you how much they enjoyed that. It did happen once. It did happen once. Yeah. And that's nice. Uh, It was weird. Uh, But this one's going to be not as pleasant to talk about. And we mentioned it in the top there, and I think it is a pleasant one to talk about because not only are you the first repeat guest on this show to talk about a second drink, you're also the first person to come on this show and talk about not only a drink that they invented, that is true, but a drink that's, that's known around the world. Wait, you haven't had Sammy Ross or Joaquin on the show talking about their drinks, or Brian, Brian Miller certainly has invented drinks. He talked about them, didn't he? But not, we haven't focused on those yet. I see. Okay. Sam, if you're listening, almost certainly not. Please return my phone calls or emails or anything. <laughs> Get Sammy Ross. <laughs> but, um, 
No, Joaquin, we'll need, to, we'll need to get back to that. But of course, we are talking about the Cosmo. People know it because they've seen the title of the show when they clicked on their, on their episode there on iTunes. But we're in a, a, what I like to call a cosmopolitan right now. Tell me, tell me how that's been for you. Is that something you're experiencing? The title of the show should be The Albatross, shouldn't it? This is, the, this is my albatross. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, uh, is it a cosmopolitan? Is it a renaissance of the cosmopolitan? I don't know. People keep asking me this, and I, it's hard for me to sort of tell because in my bar, because of who I am, I've always been asked to make, hey, would you mind, uh, would you, can I have a Cosmo from the, from the inventor? So it's always been a thing where I've been asked to make Cosmos constantly throughout my career. So you're probably a very bad person to ask this question. Yeah, like we make, I don't know, 18 Cosmos a night. Mm -hmm. And that kind of never changes. And so is that a new thing? If, if other bartenders are making 18 Cosmos a night, I assume that's uh, kind of unusual. But in my bar, it's not unusual. So I, it's, it's difficult for me to gauge those things. If you tell me there's a Cosmo Renaissance... Uh, I will say I believe you, but uh, but are you? I'm I'm sure you're probably getting fielding a lot of media requests, or have been maybe over the past year talking about this, talking about the fact the Cosmos back. Or people are saying it's back at least. I have been reading that it's back. I'm not feeling tons of uh, tons of requests. I think there's like uh, there's been enough muddying of the water that people are like, oh really? Who really invented the Cosmopolitan? So. Uh, yeah, I've been the recipient of that kind of. Uh, well, here we are. Here we are today. Let's let's. Let's tell your side of the story. Let's let's set the record wobbly. I wrote a whole book. I wrote a whole book. Which we referenced. Um, we referenced in the previous podcast. It's a great book, and it's titled... Cosmopolitan, A Bartender's Life. Um, but, you know, people don't read anymore, so I guess mm -hmm. we have to do this on the new mode, right? Which is the audio medium. Yeah. What do you want to know? Talk us, talk us through that, though. Talk us through, you know, the beginning, the origins here. Um, as I understand it, there was um, a variation, a seed of this drink being made, perhaps on the West Coast. I believe, to my understanding, that's where the story begins. But why don't you tell us yeah. about it more? And um, yeah. Okay, sure. Yes. So here's what happened. Um, I was, uh, I had just come to New York, had been living in France for many years, and uh, came to New York in 87 and got a job bartending at the Odeon down in Tribeca. And <clears throat> in 88 in the fall of 88 uh one of the bartenders i worked with a woman named melissa was out with some friends uh who had come into new york from san francisco and she said hey these friends of mine last night we were hanging out at life cafe on um Tompkins square park and they showed me this drink that's sort of making the rounds in sort of gay leather bars in san francisco it's called the cosmopolitan you want to see it and i said sure and so she made me this drink. It was real vodka with roses, lime juice, and roses, grenadine, and a twist of lemon. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, that's uh, cute, because it, it was in an up glass. It was in one of those up V-shaped martini stems. Very of the time. Very of the time, yeah. And I thought, oh, that's funny. It's in a martini glass. Like, we, you don't put cocktails in a martini glass. You just put a martini in a martini glass. So that's clever. I mean, it's cute. It's kind of red and funny looking and it has a twist it's kind of cute but it's you know it's disgusting mm -hmm. you know the drink itself tasted the drink itself bad. was grotesque okay it was you know roses <laughs> roses fake cloying you know lime cordial enough said the better reference our earlier podcast and uh and roses grenadine which is even worse which is literally just 
simple syrup, artificially color, colored red. So you've got not the makings of a great cocktail. And I simply thought, well, it's cute. I mean, I can make that better easily. And, you know, we were making cocktails constantly for the staff. That's all we did, you know, making cocktails for the waitresses there. And so because we made our margarita at the time with Cointreau and fresh lime juice at the Odeon, I just thought, oh, there's the base. And Absolute had just come out with Citroen some months earlier. And, you know, this sounds like a laugh, but it was 1988. And it was kind of the first flavored vodka that we'd ever seen. And it was absolutely mind-blowing to us. We were like, dude, the flavor is inside the vodka. (laughs) We just couldn't, but we were like, that is the coolest thing ever. But we couldn't really figure out why. We're just like, it's super new and stuff. And like, you don't even have to put lemon in it. So let's make all kinds of things with it. We couldn't figure out what to do with it. We were making martinis with it. It was dreadful. We were like, um, mm-hmm. yeah, that didn't work so well, but uh, never mind. It's still really cool. I just couldn't figure out what to do with it. And so I was like, I'll use that stuff that I kind of can't figure out what to do with. So I used Absolute Citron and Fresh Lime and Cointreau and just made it in, in sort of the proportions of a, of a regular sour. Yeah. But then I thought, okay, so how do I approximate the red? I don't want to use Rose's Grenadine because gross, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we have cranberry juice because we make Cape Codders. I'll just put a couple of dashes of cranberry in there Mm -hmm. and then shake it up. And boom, it's instantly that much better. I mean, it doesn't take a genius. Just you just have to use fresh ingredients here and and boom. And I put it out for Betsy and Thais and, you know, some of the servers. And they were like, wow. Like it became like it was just (laughs) this instant smash hit. And they're like, you have to make those for us tonight. And so I was like, sure. So the Cosmopolitan became like, oh, we want Toby's drink. We want Toby's drink. Night after night after night, it became our thing. That was our staff drink. When I say our, I really mean the waitresses. I don't think like from day one, you know, I tasted it. I was like, yeah, it's okay. Kind of, kind of girly thing, whatever. And I just kind of forgot about it, but they kept asking for it and asking for it and asking for it. And so then there was like a, a sort of weird epochal moment where one of the regulars came up and was like, hey, can I have a Cosmopolitan? And I was like, wait, what? How, that's, that's our drink. How do you know about that? Oh, Thais told me about it. One, one of the servers told mm-hmm. me about it. Oh, I see. Yeah. And then it was an even slightly stranger moment when somebody I didn't know came up. And asked for one. I was like, wait, how do you know about that? Oh, well, Donald Sultan told me about it. Or, you know, like whoever, like, you know, Robert Nero told me. Like what, you know, then some of the regulars were telling people that I didn't even know about it. And so it became, it got to be. So Bob De Niro was drinking them back in the day? Bobby D was, Bobby D was nice. I don't know if he was, but it was just like. He was aware of it though. There were all these regulars and they became aware of it. One of whom was certainly Madonna. Madonna would come in for lunch several times a week with, um, why am I forgetting her name? She terrified me um, at the time. Uh, 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 it'll come to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and they called me boyfriend. I was, you know, I was all of like 25. <laughs> and um, they would snap their fingers at me like, boyfriend, we want that pink drink. Boyfriend, get us that pink drink. And, um, I, you know, they were nice, but they, I found them terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... So that's how it that's how it gets into the public, right? And I think I'd like to jump in here for a second just to to ask some some theoretical questions here, or maybe you do have the answers for them. Mm-hmm. 
But how does it go from there to, and I mentioned this in the last show, and it's a barometer I like to use, but to the point where this is a drink that if you made it and put it on the table, my mom would know what that drink is. My mom who lives in England is not a particular fan of cocktails. She does have a few that she loves, but she's not a cocktail nerd by any, you know, by, by any measure. And so how does the Cosmo go from there? Is it because the clientele that you had at the Odeon at the time and these influencers before influencers existed, do you think that plays a part in it or is it more about the drink itself? It looks great. I would have said that's kind of silly and a little bollocks and it just was a drink that kind of caught on a bit, but I actually, I've thought about it since then. And I think, yeah, the ODN was this hub of downtown nightlife in New York city in mm-hmm. the late eighties and everyone went back. You know, I was serving Warhol and Basquiat and Herring and Sam Shepard and Robert De Niro and Harvey Keitel and Johnny Depp and Winona and Letterman, like literally the list, like, Everybody but everybody, Lou Reed, Mick Jagger, everyone. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was mind blowing that room. And that can't be for nothing. I mean, I think I always say, oh, the drink had a really good name, which I should have changed when I changed the drink so that the, so the drink arrived be- with the name and the terrible flavor profile and yeah. the color. The color probably wasn't the same as, as, as the one that you make, though, because of no. the, the vibrancy of the... No, the color, it looked like a Negroni when I first saw it. Okay. And I transformed it into this very pale pink thing that I thought was... Which looks even better. Which looks even better. I mean, better. I mean, does a Negroni look beautiful? Sure. Um, but does a Cosmo look like what it looks like because I... Because of the lime juice, it became much more opaque. And so I wanted it to be not that bright red, but a very pale, pale pink. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, to get back to your question, I think that, I think it is important that, that it, that it happened at the Odeon because then as I saw this sort of diaspora of the drink throughout downtown New York over the next ensuing year, year and a half, two years, and then on up through all of New York, it became the drink that ate us alive Mm -hmm. as bartenders, you... I mean, people, I met other bartenders would be like, you fucking jerk. <laughs> I was like, what, what, dude? They're like, eh, you know, my friend told me you're the guy who invented that fucking drink, you know? And I would say, I would just deny like, no, not even They're like, yes, I have a friend who works at the Odeon who told me, you know, like it was a thing that I just denied for years and years because I too, like them, I mean, there were nights when I was making 250 Cosmopolitans in a night. And I just thought, uh, kill me with this drink. Like, can anybody <laughs> drink anything else? This is just horrifying. Like, we were chained to a cosmopolitan machine. Why is that frustrating? Is it just the monotony? Like, why is that frustrating? Because you're going to make 200 drinks anyway. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's it's monotonous. And you're just like, this is stupid. You, you feel like an automaton. Mm-hmm. You just feel like, okay, I'm now just literally in a boot blacking factory. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Yeah. If you're making 300 drinks in a night, that's a really tough night, yeah. but it's, it's varied and you're dealing with people and whatever. And people are like, can I have Cosmo? Can I have Cosmo? Can you're I have right. four yeah. Cosmos? Can we have eight Cosmos? You're just like, yeah, you can have eight Cosmos and a dagger stare, you know, because <laughs> just, you know, but there is that fun as well. I only know it from the kitchen side, but that fun of service when you're locked in and, and you have three different things or a couple of checks going on and, and you're really like, you feel like you're on top of it. You're busy. You're on top of it. And like, when you're in that moment, it's it's a lot of fun. You're flying and yeah. you're categorizing things in your brain like, okay, yeah. I can do those first because they're quicker and then those, I'm going to need to do that. Like, That's the fun of it. That you know? is the fun of it. Yeah. So yeah, I can see why the, the 200, but I think it's worth noting that as well because 
Um, it's something I thought about before. I want to ask you a question too, because I know things change over time. Bartending, cocktail culture has changed over time. Mm-hmm. You know, the bartending industry. So when you come up with a Cosmo, how much interaction is there between different bars and different bartenders and like, this is a, this is a drink that we're doing here. Or we've, we've got this cool new thing compared to say, I mean, you mentioned it earlier, Joaquin Simo comes up with the uh, Naked and Famous, right? Like mm-hmm. compared to how a drink like that might have, ha- might have spread, what, 15 years later, or I don't know, I'm just pulling that number out of my head, but seems about right maybe. But yeah, how d- what's the difference between those two eras? massive i mean uh, it's it's so massive you can't even sort of comprehend we didn't have phones we didn't have the internet we had nothing you didn't you didn't know what the bartenders down the street were doing yeah much less the bartenders across town or uptown much less the bartenders in london or paris or whatever i mean it's i'm I'm actually really jealous of people working now because they can just read about everything going on throughout the entire world they can go to tales or mm-hmm. mark convent berlin or whatever and like become wildly and actively engaged with all kinds of people in this industry throughout the world and feel like they're a part of a thing. Whereas we felt like we were a part of nothing and the job didn't have much, uh, cachet to it. And so when I first started bartending, I was sort of embarrassed and ashamed about it. I was just like, you know, I'm going to be doing something with my life eventually, but for now I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, that's changed remarkably and has changed for the so much better. Yeah. Yeah. People know now about cocktails that people are making. You can read a spec from somebody anywhere in Portland, in, you know, Naples, in whatever, and just say, oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah. Or that sounds disgusting. Or I would take that out of that. That's pretty weird. Like, what is Hoja Santa? I want to check that out. Like, you can just like, it's, uh, it, you know, I mean, it, it's it's mind boggling how, how much information you can take in and how much connectivity you can have now mm-hmm. and i literally am ferociously jealous of young <laughs> because of it and then then the, the the kind of the naked and famous area that i mentioned there or you know like you know phil you know phil ward there with the oaxaca old-fashioned like i'm just talking about a couple of what we might call modern mm-hmm. classics you know right, they've, right. they've gotten those titles how did those ones spread was that interaction between bartenders maybe early internet times as well forums even when you look at that you know Things like Phil's drink, the Oaxacan Old Fashioned, and the Naked and Famous, and or you know like Sammy's Paper Planes. You look at all those drinks, and they are from iconic bars. Or yep. even like Dick Bread sells Bramble and Espresso Martini, and you know those are all from things that happened in hubs of of cocktail um, yep. culture in London, in New York, in the places where it was happening at the time. So I always say this is like. You know, I made a, I made up the Cosmopolitan. I've since made thousands, tens of thousands of cocktails since then because that's what we do every night. We just make things up for people who want certain things. But if you're living in Des Moines or Lawrence, Kansas or whatever, and you're a great bartender and you're just making up cocktails all the time, nobody's talking about your drinks because no. there's no there's no way for that to get out into the public. But if you're working at Death & Company during the, like, the Yankees era of the Death & Company crew... Yeah. With Phil and Joaquin and Alex Day and, you know, Thomas Wall. And, I mean, it it was just, it was literally a Yankees lineup. It was a murderer's row. And so those drinks became, you know, the Winchester and the Snap, you know, like... Miller drink right there. Yeah, those drinks became super famous because that place was 
a super, super hot hub of what was going on in the cocktail world. Equally, Sasha's place is, you know, milk and honey. Yep. You've got, you've got, you know, Sammy making both the paper planes and the penicillin coming out of that. I mean, those were just super hot scenes as, as were the bars that Dick Bradsell was working in Fred's and Soho and, and, yep. you know, all of, uh, Oliver Payton's bars in London. So it, it, it very much depends on the scene that it's coming out of, I think. So I'm just coming, I'm just pulling this out of thin air, but hearing you talk about that, I'm wondering, because like you said, you make thousands of drink a night, drinks a night, right? You, you probably, I'm sure you would admit, you've probably made a thousand drinks that you enjoy better than the Cosmo. Certainly. In that era, do you think those drinks become the quote unquote modern classics because they were made in that era too? Like I, they're all fantastic drinks, but you can make a fantastic drink and it doesn't become a modern classic. Do right. you think it's that speaks to just... It was the eye of the storm at that time. That was that was the era. That was when it was going on. Yeah, there you know, there was a, a moment when the cocktail renaissance, the, the golden, so to speak. Yeah. Is what, or yeah. the second golden age, if you will. Yeah, yeah. the cocktail renaissance. I, I think yeah. from two thousand on through whatever twenty twelve. That you know, that's the cocktail renaissance when everybody was rediscovering cocktails and it had huge momentum and people were becoming superstars and whatnot and star tenders and, and everything was a speakeasy and yeah, and it's like you know. It, it may be for the best that all that happened. Yeah. Part, of, part of it is eye-rollable and cringy, yeah. but... Um, that was the era, right? That was certainly the era. And so if you could, you could, you could posit that some of those drinks are very simple. They're just like four-ingredient um, yeah. cocktails. That, that Based are off all the cl- classic formulas that already exist. Classic formulas of family, like sour family and sort mm-hmm. of old-fashioned family. Last and, word riffs. Yeah, yeah, last word riffs. And so it, that's, it's not... It's not brain surgery, you know, mm-hmm. but, but some of those are very, very clever drinks. It takes a, a great deal of knowledge about it's tending bar. It's not ER. Yeah. Tending bar still, you know, it, it, it requires a, a great deal of knowledge and experience to do things well, but you can also pick it up pretty quickly and understand like, Oh, there are certain templates and formats that you follow mm-hmm. that kind of will guide the way. And so, yeah, there's, there's bartenders, I think all around the world who make brilliant drinks that are just Never, every yeah. other day. It's like, oh, I've got this amazing drink and I've had many of them. I'm like, why is this not just shouted? To, why is there not a clarion call? Yeah, yeah. This amazing cocktail. Well, because there's 50 billion cocktails in the world. And it's it's not a phenomenon that's unique to drinks culture or cocktails or whatever, but I think it's, it's worth pointing out. Um, and also just worth pointing out because your drink was one of the ones that broke through, but before that era, before that era had kicked off. Yeah. So what happens next? You you know that drink starts spreading around New York City. You're getting a lot of backlash from other bartenders yeah. if you are having those interactions. What happens next, and what do you believe ultimately causes the demise of the the Cosmo later on, and how long does that take? You know, like everything in New York City, it has its sort of reign for a short period of time. It's super hot. Like there, it becomes like the New York drink for. Uh, like a hot second. A hot second is mm-hmm. a year and a half, two years maybe. Mm-hmm. And then there's a violent backlash. People are like, are you kidding? You're mm-hmm. drinking Cosmos? Really? <laughs> like, is it a year and a half ago? And you're like, oh. Yeah. There's just a withering backlash. And all of that happens somewhat quickly, you know, in the sort of social sphere. Then Sex in the City comes, but people are like, oh, and then Sex in the City took it up. Sex in the City came out 10 years after I 
developed the Cosmopolitan. Yeah. So it came out in, it, it was issued in 1998. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden I'm tending bar and suddenly there's this huge, like that was the, so that was, that was the real Renaissance happening right oh, there. Man. And I, and I didn't have a TV or anything. So I just was like, what in the hell's going on? Like what? All of a sudden, uh, and somebody's like, oh, there's this show. You don't know? There's this show where these chicks are all drinking Cosmos all the time. You should, <laughs> like, you should definitely not watch it. It's really, really dreadful. Um, and so to this day, I've never seen an episode of Sex and the City. Is actually. that just the stance that you're holding? You're just holding that line? You know, I, I, don't, I guess I could go on YouTube now and watch one, right? Yeah. Um, and probably should. But I, and I was like, I probably should do that. And one of my friends was like, you really probably shouldn't. Like everything. Don't watch your, the reboot. Uh, that's all I would say for sure. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm pretty, I'm fairly sure I would kind of hate it, but. Yeah, but funny. there's a nostalgia to it, which, and again, I think that fits into this, this current era that we're, we're in right now. There's a, this, a nostalgia and I'm not quite sure why there was a lot of bad things about the nineties. I don't get the whole nineties fashion thing, but mm. maybe, yeah. I don't know. People aren't looking to me for fashion advice. So yeah. But um, there is that nostalgia to it, and there's probably a nostalgia if you watch Sex in the City now, but it's an important point. How many other drinks out there have been taken around the world? Like, literally, I think that, that helps spread it around the world as well. How many others are there out there? Yeah, I mean, well, that became a weird thing. So, as I said, I, I used to just, like, adamantly deny that I was the author of The Cosmopolitan because it was sort of embarrassing and, and weird kitschy until until the real cocktail renaissance started you know around 2000 and then people you know started putting some real cash in it's like let's look to our forebears and really the like the cocktails that came out of the 50s cocktails that came out of the 60s and the cosmopolitan remains sort of the only cocktail that entered the lexicon yep. from the 80s. Yep. Like people were like, who really invented this drink? And I'm like, so then people started coming out of the woodwork. Like all these freaks started coming out of the woodwork. <laughs> like, I invented the Cosmopolitan. I invented the Cosmopolitan. I invented the Cosmopolitan. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. I mean, this may be my albatross, but it is at least my albatross. I mean, who are these freaks? And I had to start actually owning up. And and so um, Absolute at that time... Perno Ricard bought Absolute from the Swedish government. The Swedish government developed Absolute as a yep. product and decided it wanted to privatize and just sell it off. And so Perno Ricard bought Absolute. When they did that, Absolute was like, we need to get to the bottom of this because this contains one of our products and we need to sort of, you know, promote the cosmopolitan. We need to know who actually mm-hmm. invented it of all these people. I thought you, I thought you were going to say we need to go to this person and give them a ton of money, but we'll get yeah. into that a bit later. I, I wish that had happened, <laughs> but uh, that wasn't exactly it. They just wanted to, you know, confirm the authorship. So they sort of took down all these names of people who they contacted me and they're like, you claim to be the inventor of the cosmopolitan. And I'm like, yeah, uh, yes, I do. They're like, would you mind if we send a journalist around to take your story in great detail and sort of note all the dates and all the, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, sure, no problem. And so they said, you know, we're sending a journalist all around to interview all these people who maintain that they, that they invented this drink. Mm-hmm. At the end of which, you know, a couple months later, they were like, uh, so guess what? Um, your story is the only one that checks out. I was like, well, what a sh- what a shocking surprise! Because <laughs> in fact, I invented that drink. They're like, well, yeah, all the dates work and all that. Yeah, it, it's sort of like everyone else seems to be sort of telling fibs. And I'm like, well, yeah, people do that. 
so it was this thing where as a result of the sort of cocktail renaissance and all this scrutiny on cocktails, I had to finally own up like, yeah, no, this is my drink. I mean, I did, I did develop this cocktail. Yeah. Um, what more do you want to know about it? <laughs> did I become rich from it? <laughs> I did not. <laughs> so I think that's an important part to bring up now because this is, this is a facet of bartending and this conversation that we're having about these modern classics. There's only one in there that I believe the, the, the author of that drink, the creator is quite litigious when it comes to the, the use of it. But otherwise the fact of the matter is that you don't make any money off of a cocktail that you invent and then spirits brands conglomerates are free to go out there. I mean the RTD boom right now I've tasted five, six, seven Cosmos at least. Sarah Jessica Parker has a Cosmo out now. I've seen that, yeah. Have you had it? I think I hear they're doing the launch event at your bar. Uh, yeah, no, they're not. Um, <laughs> no. But how, how does that feel? It's, uh, it's a little bit of a punch in the solar plexus, I guess, because, yeah, I, I, God willing that there were some way to patent a cocktail and make, you know, I would love to be a millionaire from the Cosmopolitan, but... Yeah, it never happened. You can't do it. You, It's just out there. You just release it and it's, the world can use it. So, yeah, there was actually a moment years ago where one of the reps from Absolute said to me, what would you say to us developing an RTD of the Cosmopolitan with your name on it and you doing the recipe and it would be all signed off on by you? You know, I was like, yes, yes. Let's put our, let, I'll sign that today. Let's do it today. I'll sign that right now. Let's, I'll sign that this minute. And you're like, well, it's just an idea we're having. Like, you know, not really. And then it just went to nothing. And now, of course, everyone's doing it. Like yeah. RTD, you know, after after the pandemic, of course, it makes sense. Everyone wants to do RTDs. And that makes great sense. Even though I I don't think I've ever tasted an RTD because why would I? I'm a bartender. I don't need ready-to-drink canned yeah. cocktails. That's just anathema to everything in my entire being. But... Um, lots and lots and lots and lots of people want to go to the supermarket and just buy a cocktail. They're like, I didn't, I'm not buying all that expensive stuff to put that together. Somebody's done it already. Let's do that. Yeah. Makes great sense. But yeah. How do you do that properly? Uh, it's. You de you definitely need that help. Right. I mean, I, I think people, individuals have gone about and done it now and put, pulled the pieces together. You get the flavor company, the packaging, right. And all, the different ingredients. But I, I'm sure at that time you needed the, the spirits brand and the yeah, drinks yeah. producer to do that. Yeah. Well, I'm given to understand that they're, they're across the board, pretty dreadful. <laughs> yeah. um, and I can understand why you can do a cocktail that is something very inert, like an old fashioned or Manhattan yep. where you have Negroni, you have base spirits like blended together and that's going to be fine in a can. The problem comes in when you have to incorporate citrus and yep. citrus oxidizes and citrus reacts with metal and all kinds of things that become ghastly when you then try to put it in a can and make it shelf stable. So you have to figure out all those things. And there are, I'm sure, ways to figure those out. You can use citric salt and citric acid. And you, there's all this trickery in, that you can get up to, but you need to really, really, really dial it in. And that's not saying that some people can't dial it in. Yep. There are huge corporations that can do that. And there's an entire arm of of Cornell college that helps people do that. I mean, there are ways and means and I'm sure somebody's going to crack it, but, um, I, I understand it's somewhat difficult. It's not yet. And it's never quite the same as fresh citrus. And, um, you know, to, to, to move us on slightly here, it's funny because before, before I'd ever spoken to you or met you, I was writing and this was before the pandemic. So it feels like a different time right now, but 
was writing a fun little story, or I thought it was fun at least, for, for Vine Bear here, where we figured what if in one night we went to every bar that features in Sex and the City in New York that you can go to, and we'll have a Cosmo, and we will rank them. And I tried to get in contact with with yourself through a brand that had worked with you before and no one ever connected us. So sadly, I was like, I could actually, we could actually do this with the drinks creator. I don't know whether you would have done it. But long story short, during that night, we started at Odeon and it was probably the first Cosmo I'd had in 10 years or, or I, God knows how long. I was like, this is a good drink. In its essence, this is a good drink for, for, for all the fanfare, for all the sex in the city and the, the story and, and, and whatnot, the reputation that maybe it got. It's a great drink at its core. So, A, do you agree with that? First, I want to say that I would have done that, that bar crawl in a hot second had I actually gotten your, I don't know, did it go to spam? I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't remember that. Um, but That would have been, I'll tell you, it was a fun night. <laughs> this is the weird thing about the actual Cosmo, the way I made it. Yeah. It, it's, a, it's an actually adult drink. It's a, it's a kind of a brutal sour. It's very, very tart. And when, I, when, I, when people come up and they're like, can I have a Cosmo actually made by the master creator, blah, blah, blah. I say, yeah, you might be a little surprised. It's, it's going to be quite tart. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not sweet. If you're used to what you think of a Cosmopolitan my palate skews very dry and very severely tart. And much, the like way your, I, much like your humor. Yeah, much like my entire being. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's more bitter and sour. But, um, but yeah, so as, as a drink, it's just, it's, it's a sour. And, it, and, it's, it, and it's, it's not as sweet as a margarita either, even though it no, shares no. that daisy profile. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not that sweetness either. I mean, I, use a, I incorporate the, the actual spec on it is 2111. So yeah. two parts of, of vodka to one part, one full part of lime juice, mm-hmm. one full part of Cointreau, and one full part of Ocean Spray Cranberry Juice Cocktail. So um, it's that full ounce or three quarters of an ounce of, of lime juice in there is what most people don't get right. They'll be like, oh, use a half ounce, use a quarter ounce of lime juice. Like, no, use a full portion. If you're, if those are ounces, that's a full ounce, but really in the, in the proper spec right now, it's one and a half, uh, absolute citron to three quarters each of Cointreau, lime juice and cream juice. And why is that? So that it's a smaller yeah, this sort of fits in a in a modern size. in a modern coupe. Uh, you know, the way I did it was two one one one. That was and a, you were a, doing it in martini glasses in those gigantic aquarium <laughs> glasses that were like you know that's like a seventeen ounce cocktail. I think they're and, still doing it that way at Odeon. I would mm, need to check my photos, but I believe nice. they are. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> the Odeon just apparently changed recently. They were doing it with Combier for a long time. I'm like, why are they doing this? Like, I developed this cocktail here with Cointreau. Yep, and they're like. Now, apparently, they've changed it to quality. That's right. I remember asking the spec at the bar and being like, this is crazy. Um, we also had a Sex in the City tour guide with us on that day. It was a, it was a wonderful evening. I'm really Maybe, sorry. I why don't we that. do it? We'll, we'll do it again. We'll bring it back. We'll do another one. I will do that if you get Sarah Jessica Parker to sign on for it. I think we have her people's number. Excellent. Let's do it. All right. Um, of course, this show is about going beyond the recipe, dialing in on the details. You've given us the spec there. Are there any? Are there any kind of? You know, we're talking about this drink being made by the master creator. Are there any tips you would give for people making this at home? If you were approaching it today, making it for us here, 
what would you be doing? Take when, us through it step by step. Okay, making it at home. Make sure first you chill your glass. Mm -hmm. or, or making it at home or making it in a bar. We have bartenders listening to this too. This is a, a you know, we're a wide audience. Let's be fair. This is all bartenders listening and then four people from the United States of America who are lay um, listeners. So, <laughs> yeah. So, obviously, chill your stemware first. You want a uh, stemmed coupe of some kind. Uh, chill your glass, and then you simply need ice and a shaker and a strainer, and uh, you need absolute citron vodka. Has to be. Well, that's what I developed a drink with. You could mm. just make it with vodka, and it isn't quite the same. I think citron is slightly sweetened and slightly, it's kind of got a heavier mouthfeel and profile to it. I've made them side by side with both, and I'm like, wow, I'll be damned. There really there's probably is, some glycerin in there, maybe. Yeah, or I mean, they swear there's not, but there is a perceptible difference. Yep. I have to say it's slightly better with Absolute Citron. Okay. I, and I, I really think it's true. Um, and I, I really also insist on Cointreau. I mean, I think Cointreau is the best triple psych out there, just bar none. Um, it's brutally expensive. It makes me crazy. But I don't know what to tell you. It literally, it's the most expensive thing in the drink. But you also have to use Ocean Spray Cranberry Juice Cocktail. You mm -hmm. can't use like, you know, organic cranberry juice. It doesn't, you know, it's like it, it because that's what, that's what the, that's what the original spec is. And that yeah. works best in it. So fresh lime juice strained. And so, yeah, then it's simply the, the ratio is two to one to one to one. And the breakdown is one and a half ounces of absolute citron to three quarters of an ounce each of Cointreau lime juice and mm -hmm. cranberry. And you put that in the shaker with plenty of ice and shake it madly for 25 seconds, say, until the outside of the shaker is is rhymed with ice. Mm -hmm. And then you strain it into the chilled cocktail coupe. And it's lime juice, but a lemon twist. Lime juice, lemon twist. Yeah, that's the way I invented it. And Jim Meehan maintains that he uses an orange, orange peel. Dale DeGroff does the flamed orange peel with mm -hmm. it. Uh, that became very popular for a while. Jim uses a just an orange peel, and he's like, no, because, you know, there's Quantra the in Quantra, there, so there's an orange thing. I'm like, you know, that makes sense. I use a, I use a lemon twist because Absolute Citron is has lemon in it. It also has lime. It also mm. has this and that. You know, either are valid. If you, I, I will go with if you, if you prefer a lemon twist, that's fine. I mean, uh, an orange right. twist, rather. I use a lemon twist. Lemon's also daintier. Let's be honest, more in keeping with the, I mean, you can make a smaller orange peel, but it tends to come out the peeler bigger. Yeah, I just, I like the the grab of a lemon uh, mm. a lemon oil a little better on there. Yeah. Um, I like it a little grabbier. I love orange for certain things, but I just still like a lemon twist for a Cosmo. And what's your preferred shaker, just out of interest? Are you a Boston guy or uh, you go for the, the little cobbler? Oh, I don't use a cobbler shaker. I use a, I use a, I use a, a tin on tin and uh, what we call an uh, 288. 1828. So an 18-ounce uh, smaller tin to a 28-ounce larger tin. I get mine from barproducts.com. Mm -hmm. I, I just use the like, you know, the Other working, the working men's. Yeah, yeah, the working men's tin. Um, you can get great tins from uh, Cocktail Kingdom. They, mm -hmm. have, they have excellent tins. They have 28-18 combos mm -hmm. that are spectacular. Those so that's well. that's the ratio there that you want for the for the or is that just the standard? That gives you that's a standard. That's yeah, yeah. just the standard, but it gives you a lot of throw. I like a lot of room to throw the ice in the drink, yep. so it, it breaks the ice up a great deal. It dilutes down. That aeration's also probably going to soften some of the the bitterness of the of the of the cranberry juice there. I mean, 
I mean, no, uh, depends I, on how I much of that you believe. But I, I shake think, a Negroni. I think, I think it's the dilution that really. I mean, you can get some aeration in there. Certainly, mm. that that has some oxidation has some play in there. I really think that dilution does all of that. The dilution is so undervalued in drink making. Yep. Um, I want enormous dilution in mine because mm-hmm. I like a soft palate, and I think that that opens up the aromatics, it volatilizes everything that's in the drink. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really think, you know, I guess the standard is like somewhere between 18 and whatever. I think 26% dilution is is right exactly where I want Phenomenal. It. And mm-hmm. are, are you double straining or a single, just a Hawthorne strainer here? Do you want some chips advice in there? That's that's actually a, 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 that's a very funny point that people are constantly debating with the Cosmopolitan because, of course, when I started bartending and, and was making this drink, nobody was double straining. It didn't exist. So, of course, I made it with like chips of ice floating on the surface and now everyone double strains and I'm like, yeah, should we should we remain true to, to the history era, or yeah, or should we make it the way one makes cocktails now? Um, <laughs> In I'm, which case, should we not be using cold draft ice? Sorry yeah, exactly. to interject. Yeah, I mean, I don't use cold draft. I use chip ice. I use I like pillow ice. Um, but uh, yeah, I think now, I think now maybe I would double strain. Mm-hmm. Do I? I sort of do and I don't. It depends on my mood, but. I think with this drink, there's nothing wrong with not double straining because that's the way it was originally mm-hmm. made. And so, you know, throwback. And if nice. You can wear hammer pants while mm-hmm. you're doing it and not double strain. It's popular again, like I said, this 90s fashion. For people out there, just, just to cut back a quick second there, people out there like myself who might not be familiar with pillow ice or what's the difference between pillow? I know cold draft is being the machine and, and, and a lot of people favoring that in the bar world, but what's pillow? Is that just a standard ice machine yeah what bartenders like to call shit ice okay um yeah cold draft are are one by one inch cubes roughly mm-hmm. um whereas pillow ice is just a sort of ice that comes out it looks like little pillows and yeah. i actually like that because it gives me more dilution mm-hmm. you have more surface area going on there so i mean cold draft is amazing looking in a highball i'll give mm-hmm. you that it's fine to shake with but cold draft machines are notorious for breaking down constantly i hear so, that um, Do I most people lease them? Most people should lease them. I mean, I think most people buy them, but uh, I would lease them if I were going to do it. Because I believe the service contract might be written in there. I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah, you should. <laughs> Interesting one. Um, are we missing anything else here in the in the cosmopolitan conversation? Do you have anything else to add? Relating to this conversation or the drink itself. Or the drink itself. You know, in the modern area of RTDs and, you know, intellectual properties, if there are any really savvy lawyers out there who want to connect me with um, a way to become a multimillionaire through my long maligned cocktail, I'm I'm all ears. So, you know, you can yep. contact me through VinePair. Yep. And, and, yeah, I do have his contact details now. So we are able to break through... What a shame! It would have been a different. It would have been a different world. Who knows what would have happened? Um, Toby, it's been a lot of fun. It is always a lot of fun. Here's the exciting part today. We're not finished. We're not finished. Yeah. And you know what? We've already done the final five questions. So for the listeners and for myself, mm-hmm. we have something fun here, which is a new set of five questions that we've developed for repeat guests. Oh, fun! Wow. Great. And uh, I don't believe you've read over these beforehand, even though I sent them to you. Yeah, why would I do that? I, I'm not going <laughs> to open an attachment that you send me. Well, you know, I'm hoping some of these don't put you on the spot too much. Okay. We'll see. All right, all right. Question number one, 
as is customary. Which spirits category are you currently most excited about from a personal and or professional perspective? Mm. Um, yeah, that seems easy. Um, I've been on this soapbox for what, 15, 20 years. I swear someday it's going to come to fruition. Uh, like Mescal did when I was screaming in the wilderness about Mescal. Now people get Mescal. Aquavit. I just think I just, Aquavit is so amazing and no one gets it. No one's into it. When I taste people on it, they're like, Hmm, that's weird. Well, that's what you would say about gin, too. When you yeah. taste it. I mean, Aquavit is, is effectively gin, but with the juniper replaced by caraway. Nice. And it's, I mean, it's craveable. But the problem with Aquavit is that people haven't tasted really great ones. Yep. Most of the Aquavits in the world are made in Norway by one company, Arcus SA. Arcus used to be the national brand. It was the arm of the government that created spirits post repeal of their prohibition and they only some years back privatized it but Arcus at a point made over a hundred different brands of Aquavit some of which are spectacular and exactly one of which gets exported to this country and it's Ligne and Ligne is fine mm -hmm. but it's sort of in the middle of the it's sort of middle of the road it's like fine but it's nowhere near any of their spectacular things like Simmerstafel and Makavit and they, they have these incredible things that no one's heard of here. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, why don't you send some of those things here? People would, it would blow bartenders' minds and, in, and, and blow this category wide open. Finally, you're seeing some, uh, Christian Krogstad at House Spirits was the only person who made a domestic aquavit for years and years and years, uh, Krogstad. And now there are some others, some of which are really quite good. Um, so, there is a little bit of traction gaining, but I think it's the next thing that's going to blow open, but it mm -hmm. still could be five years from now. And if know. someone listening goes out, goes out and buys a good bottle, does some research, what's a quick and easy or a delicious way that you would say to, to deploy that? Not easy because, you know, this show's about going above, but like, are we talking like a martini style cocktail because you had the gin there or what, how would you say this is, and this is how you try it. You got your Aquavit and this is how you try Yeah, it. I mean, Aquavit is the funny thing. I really like drinking it by itself. It, okay. it, I've had spectacular cocktails made with it and it's going to be a thing that is incorporated in cocktails the way every other base spirit is. But, you know, in the places where it's made, in Scandinavia and Northern Germany, it's just had as a schnapps. It's just mm -hmm. had, you know, I think we think of it as frozen, but in, in Norway, it's all kind of like room temp yep. and you have it with beer, with food. Nice. The way sort of you, in Japan, you have sake alongside beer with meals. That's the way they take sake for the most part. And it's very much the same with Akavit. And it's spectacular. Nice. Definitely need to go out and stock up on a bottle for myself. Don't think that is one that I have on the old the old bar cart at home. Mm, man, Brennevin from Iceland. Opie Anderson from Sweden. Um, yeah, yeah. There's some great ones. Very nice. Question number two here. Mm -hmm. What was the last ideally alcoholic drink that you had that wowed you? The last? Most recent. Most recent? Um, actually, last night. Last night, I had a, a sort of a, a super interesting wine um, that somebody just put in my purview. You know it's good when uh, a wine purveyor, a wine rep that I'm good friends with, told me about this wine, but it's not his wine. It's a different company. He was like, check this out. Nice. Go check this out from these guys. 
And so, um, yeah, I inquired about it and I, and I got a bottle last night. It's, um, it's a pure varietal senso from, um, Chile from this guy, Pedro Parra, P-A-R-R-A, who is apparently like this, uh, superhuman. He's a, he's a, an enologist and a wine consultant throughout the world, but he also has his own brands in Chile as well. He's a geologist with a PhD in agronomy. Wow. And so he um, he's really, really into the geological factor. He plants only on a specific kind of white granite. That I mean, the whole thing's a little bit nutty. But So he's doing these single varietal senso, which, you know, you think of senso as like just this afterthought in Rhone varietals. Yeah, you know, not typically a varietal grape. No, and, and who's ever had it by itself? Mm-hmm. And it, in fact, is this re- it's sort of similar to Pinot Noir. It's this very, very light-bodied, nice. really aromatic thing that's sort of chalky and, and slightly opaque and really open. Um, it was really beautiful and really intriguing. And I was like, wow, this is a super interesting wine mm-hmm. that I never sort of... I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm sort of uh, a little bit sticky about wines from Chile anyway. Like I just think of Mendoza and these huge, huge exports. I know that in every wine region around the world, there are spectacular small vintners mm-hmm. that you never are going to get. You're never going to hear from. Sure. Um, and this is one of them and just happened to like fall into my, my sphere of knowledge. And I was like, whoa. This That's is why great. importers are good people to know as well. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. This wine was called Imaginador. Okay. Yeah. Very nice. Question number three here for you. What's one book you would recommend that every alcohol and cocktail enthusiast should own a copy of? Oh, um, let's see. Embry, maybe? David Embry? Uh, It's kind of dated, but it's sort of cranky and funny. Um, Baker, certainly. Charles Baker's, you know, around the world in seven million cocktails. What's it actually called? The, uh, The... Imbibers, what's it called? The companion? I'm not good with names. Yeah, Charles. Charles. Baker. I know. I know where you're. The, you're talking there's about. There's two but, volumes. Yeah. Two yeah. volumes. One is sort of like the world, and one is South America. Mm-hmm. But Baker's books are amazing. Um, Bernard. Devoto's, so it's not cosmopolitan. I I'm not going to plug my own book. Certainly, um, <laughs> I'll plug it for you. It should be in your collection, folks. The Hour. You mm-hmm. know that book by Bernard Devoto. Um, he was an old New Yorker writer, I think, and he wrote this slim volume Ooh. about the Martini. Uh, that's very also that seems very, very in my wheelhouse. It's great. Yeah, kind of great. Never um, finished a, a copy of the New Yorker. I've tried. I've nearly got there once, but I, no, I'm joking. Philistines. <laughs> I like the cartoons. Yeah, yeah, they're very good. Mm-hmm. Here's one. Here's one you're gonna wish you'd prepared for, but mm-hmm. we'll see what you got off the off the top of your head. Question number four here. If you could appear in one movie scene where alcohol plays a prominent role. Which one would it be, and who would you like to play? Hmm. Oh, let's see. Okay, two things come to mind immediately. Um, what uh, William Powell in the first Thin Man, when he's when the when you first see him, he's shaking a martini, shaking a martini, and talks about how you shake a Manhattan to I don't know, like two thirds time, and you shake a Bronx to this time, but you always <laughs> shake a martini to Walt's time. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wait, no, you don't shake a martini at all, but it's such a great scene. Like, Who wouldn't want to do that scene? That was great. That's a good one. Yeah. And then, and then it's a wonderful life where you've got uh, Nick at martinis when he, when he turns mean, when, when, uh, when everything goes bad and he brings the angel back into Nick's and he's like, all right, you two pixies, we serve drinks in here for men who want to get drunk fast and we don't need characters around. And he, and he has them thrown out in the snow. I, I, I would like to play Nick in that. 
That doesn't surprise me for some reason. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, I do play him nightly anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's so. what you do. That's yeah. literally what you're doing on a regular basis at Long Island sure. Bar there. Yeah. Or Rockwell Place. Or, yes. Absolutely. Is that all our questions? Final question for you. No. Very interesting for today's show, and I forgot that this was the question that I'd written down. Okay. Which modern classic cocktail do you think is deserving of more recognition than it gets? Mm. Mm. Um, that's an interesting question because like lots of them get more recognition than they deserve. So, um, Feel free to name that one. But we're, uh, no, we're positive here on Cocktail College. We're not trying to do anyone down. We're lifting yeah, people up. No haters here. Um, actually, I, you, know, you mentioned it earlier, but I would say definitely Joaquin Simo's Naked and Famous. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think a ton of people know that drink, but that I would have said Sammy's Paper Planes because I yep. think that's an amazing cocktail. Yeah, it is. So, but I think I think that cocktail has huge adherence and and lots and lots of people who love yep. it. But Joaquin's riff on that, which is an equal parts cocktail. Yeah, of, interesting that they're both the last word formula. They're last word riffs, and so they're equal part cocktails that are four ingredients, three quarters of an ounce each of chichicapa mezcal. Um, yellow chartreuse, right? Lime juice and Aperol. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's a tremendous drink with yeah. a great name. I mean, yeah. I think a great name is very important for a cocktail. Yeah. Well, Toby. I have one thing to add. You, you do. Yeah. Tell me. You asked me last time I was on here, what, what piece of, uh, what equipment? is the most, um, undervalued piece of equipment in a bartender's arsenal? Right. And I told you the OXO Good Grips Oyster Knife, right? Which yes. remains true. Certainly. It does not remain true because as I found out and we bought one for the office, this thing can't open a damn box. Okay, so um, let's let's put an asterisk on this. Don't be adult and mistake it for a box cutter. Just buy a box cutter. Because a <laughs> box cutter, in fact, can open up boxes because it has a razor blade on it. The oyster knife is dull, has a point. It's good for everything else on the planet. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to belabor that because the other thing that I was thinking of today as I was using it for the umpteen millionth time is the global serrated six inch utility knife that I've used as a bar knife for a decade easily. And they're amazing. It's the best knife behind the bar. So we, it's a tomato knife. It's spectacular for fruit. It's spectacular for tomatoes. Like yeah. anything. Did I say tomato just because you, you said that? You know. It's that can get in you. Yeah, it's the influence. <laughs> it's great for tomatoes also. Um, yeah, because it's serrated, it's great for anything with a thin skin, but that also includes citrus. It really is spectacular yeah. for citrus. Yeah. And that's what we do behind the bar. Wonderful. That's my plug for, for uh, Global. Global. Other brands are available. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Toby, thanks for coming back. Is this your second podcast you've ever done? Yes. In my, the world? It's second and last, yes. <laughs> we'll see about that. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Let's go drink some chichicapa. Let's do it. Okay, that was a lot of info, but here's the good news. Every single episode of VinePair's Cocktail College is also published on vinepair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. Also, if you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe. And please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. 
Cocktail College is recorded and produced in New York City by myself and Keith Beavers, Vine Pairs Tastings Director and All Round Podcast Guru. Of course, I want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the Vine Pair team. Too many awesome people to mention. They know who they are. But I want to give some credit here to Danielle Greenberg, Art Director at Vine Pair, for designing the awesome show logo. And listen to that music. That's a Darby Seaside original. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time. <laughs>